Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Today we're going to talk about God's faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. And this is one of the exciting attributes of God's character and, and it's just another one of his, uh, the, the beautiful parts of God's character that cause us to, to just to have a, a real rise of worship and, and adoration for who God is. In Philemon, little book right after Titus, Paul says to Philemon in verses four through six, he says, I thank my God always making, of, making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And here's what Paul prays for Philemon. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. And see, our fellowship with God and with each other grows as we have knowledge of who God is, just as a, a relationship grows, as you know more about each other, so our relationship with God know, grows as we have greater knowledge of him. And that's, see, that's our purpose for this course is to look at God and to see more clearly who he is so that we can respond to him rightly. Okay? I want you to turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. want to review looking at this scripture. We've looked at it a couple of times already. It's so important that we, that we keep the focus on, on why we're studying the promises and the character of God it's so that we can become more like him and so that we can respond rightly to God. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice once again that the grace of God comes to us as we know God. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And see, salvation is a growing experience. We're, today we should be a little bit more salvaged than we were yesterday because today we're, we know a little bit more about God. We've participated in a relationship with him. And so salvation is an ongoing transforming process. We, we see four things from these verses. Number one, we see that his power has already given us Everything we need for life and godliness. We find that Jesus has already provided all that we need in order to become or to to have life and to have godliness. That's really assuring, isn't it? Knowing that God doesn't have to do anything more. It's already been made available through Jesus Christ. The second thing is that moving on in growth comes by acknowledging Jesus. When we move on in growth, it comes by acknowledging Jesus and acknowledging who he is. Ephesians 4.13 speaks of growing into the unity of the faith. Back in verse 3 of Ephesians 4, it talks about first preserving the unity of spirit. And that's the unity of us loving one another and staying committed to one another. 
But also we're to come into the unity of faith, which is the unity of understanding who God is, understanding his purposes, understanding the way he works in human history. And that's going to come as we grow into the true knowledge of God. Number three, provision for God, provision of God for us is contained in his promises. That's what verse three says. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own, own glory and excellence. And then verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. And that's becoming conformed into the image of Jesus. And then number four, the result is that we partake of God's character and we become a little reflection of what God is really like, because our character is transformed to be like him. And what we do is we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust, is that we are transformed out of the world's mold, out of the world's habits, and we're transformed into God's character and his purposes. And so we escape all the corruption that's in the world, all the lying and the deceit and everything that, that characterizes the world system. We escape that by coming what Jesus wants us to be. And this whole this this principle of, of possessing the land is exactly what God told to Joshua here in Joshua chapter one. And he makes a makes an injunction in the first chapter of Joshua, and this is what it says, verses one through three. Now it came about that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. So God was saying, I've given you the land. You are to cross over the Jordan and you are, you are to take the land. And then God says in verse three, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. God says, I have given you the, the land. Yet on the other hand, you are going to have to go in and, and take it. And you're going to have to defeat the giants and because of the enemy and because of his strongholds in the land, every step we take into the promised land is, is contested by the enemy. And that's why the, that's the spiritual battle that we're in. And so it's just not an automatic thing of us possessing the promised land, but it's going in and fighting and contesting and, and doing battle so that we indeed can possess the land. And the battle that we're facing is against, it, it's, the, it's the, really the integrity of God. It's the integrity of God. And is God righteous? Is he loving? Is he kind? Is he just? And that's where the enemy will war against you. He'll start throwing the darts, the fiery darts that Ephesians 6 talks about, are the darts that are against God's character. The dart that says, boy, God doesn't love you, or boy, God's not being fair to you. And the one we'll talk about today is, boy, God's not going to be faithful to you. You can't trust him. He's going to get you in the end. And see, the, we, the, the, the armor that we raise up against that, the shield of faith, is the faith in God's character. See, the shield of faith is woven in our lives by believing the character of God. And that's how we defeat the lying darts of the enemy and, and the ways that he would seek to war against us. So we're in a very real battle. In order for us to have victory in our lives, we've got to really lay ourselves firm on the foundation of the character of God. Amen? All right. Okay, we're going to talk about the, the faithfulness of God. Now, as we've been talking about all these different aspects of God's character, we need to remember that all of these characteristics 
are all blended in the person of God, and they're not in opposition to each other. I want to read you a statement here from A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's what he says. All of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. His attributes, love, his faithfulness, his holiness, his mercy, his justice, all the things we've been talking about this quarter. All of God's acts are consistent with all his attributes. No attribute contradicts any other, but all harmonize and blend into each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. All that God does agrees with all that God is, and being and doing are one in him. The familiar picture of God, as often torn between his justice and his mercy, is altogether false to the facts. To think of God as inclining first toward one and then toward another of his attributes is to imagine a God who is unsure of himself, frustrated and emotionally unstable, which is, of course, to say that the one of whom we are thinking is not the true God at all, but a weak mental reflection of him badly out of focus. God, being who he is, cannot cease to be what he is, and being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable, so all his words and acts must be, must be and remain faithful. Men, because of unfaithful, men become unfaithful out of desire, fear, weakness, inherent loss of interest, because of strong influence from without or from within. Obviously, none of these forces can affect God in any way. He is his own reason for all he, did, he is and does. He cannot be compelled from without, but ever speaks and acts from within himself by his own sovereign will as it pleases him. I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church through the years has arisen from believing things about God that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things as to obscure other things that are equally true. To magnify any attribute to the exclusion of another is to head straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology, and yet we are all constantly tempted to do just that. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in, in such a way as to virtually deny that he is just, which also the Bible teaches. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it makes him contradict his holiness, or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys or at least greatly diminishes his goodness and his love. We can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. It is a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he, in his ignorance, deems objectionable. Blindness, in part, must surely fall upon us, upon any of us presumptuous enough to attempt such a thing, and it is wholly uncalled for. We need not fear to let the truth stand as it is written. There is no conflict among the divine attributes. God's being is unitary. He cannot divide himself and act at any given time from one of his attributes while the rest remain inactive. All that God is must accord with all that God does. Justice must be present in mercy and love in judgment, and so with all of the divine attributes. And the point that, um, that A.W. Tozer tries to make is that God's attributes all fit together and they're all in action at all times. 
And especially to think that God, you know, is, is kind of unstable, like wondering about whether he can show mercy or whether he should do justice. Is, that is not a right picture of God. God is totally stable and consistent. And all of his attributes are in operation at all times, really. They're, really, they're never in, in opposition to each other as, as he is described to us. Okay, today we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. I'm going to put some statements on the board. We can say that God is absolute dependability and trustworthiness. Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. And really, we can say this, only as we have complete assurance that God is faithful, may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. See, it's all of God's promises hinge on his faithfulness. How do you know that there's a heaven? How do you know that you're going to live eternally with Jesus? What attribute of God's character does that rest on? That's his faithfulness. That's that he's faithful to the words that he has spoken. Now, let me give you a definition of faithfulness, a rather incomplete one, but I, I think this will help to illustrate what faithfulness is. We can say that faithfulness is, or, or being faithful is worthy of trust or credence. It's being worthy of trust or credence. And we can say that it's one who is consistently reliable. One that is consistently reliable, worthy of trust or credence, and one that is consistently reliable. That describes God. You know that God is the most reliable being in the whole universe? He's the most dependable. He's the one that's worthy of our trust far beyond all person. If we were going to trust anybody, God would be our first choice because he has never failed. He has never broken one of his promises. Every word that he has spoken, he has done everything in his power to fulfill it. That's, and as we grasp this, that, that's where our, the peace and the rest can come into our lives because we realize that in every situation we have grounds to trust God. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 8. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible. It says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will march with you. He will not fail you or let you go or forsake you. Let there be no cowardice of flinching, but fear not. Neither become broken in spirit, depressed, dismayed, and unnerved with alarm. There's three things that that verse tells us. Number one, it says that he will go before you, that God goes before you. Wherever you go, God's already been there, so he knows the way. Second thing, he says that he will be with you. He will with you. He will be with you. Remember Jesus said that in Matthew 28? And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. Jesus promises he'll never leave us. I remember this story one time that uh, the Lord was showing this man the path of his life. And, and it was like path, footprints in the sand. And there would, there would be two sets of footprints. And at sometimes one of them would wander off. And, and, and then one of the sets of footprints would disappear totally. And, and the guy was talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, you know, you said you'd never leave me. Or forsake me. Well, how come there's only one set of footprints? And the Lord said, my child, those are the times that I carried you. Hallelujah. So that's a demonstration of God's faithfulness. And the third thing this verse says is that God will not fail you or forsake you. This is such an incredible revelation. 
God cannot fail. God cannot fail because his character is one of faithfulness. And therefore, God cannot fail. God will not fail because he cannot fail. You see, when we talk about God, we're talking about the, the, the being in the universe that has all knowledge. He has all power. He has all wisdom. And, and he has all insight. And so there's, there's really nothing that God does not have the power to do. He has the power to back up his word. And therefore, when he says, I will not fail, we ought to believe him because the evidence is stacked in his favor. If he's got all the power in, in the universe, shouldn't we be able to trust him? And see, the power is not just raw power, you know, the, it's not just the raw roar of the waves or the raw, raw roar of the winds, but that power is used in accordance with God's character. Remember, his love is that he uses all of his divine resources, all of his power and wisdom and knowledge. He uses that to our good. See, it's not, it's not just raw power, but it's power used in a moral sense of love to the benefit and blessing of all of his creatures. Hallelujah. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, Jeremiah gives us a warning. And he says this, Jeremiah 17 and verse 5. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. God said, Cursed is the man that trusts in man because man will always fail you, won't he? That's one of the things we have to learn as Christians is that men ultimately will fail you and we cannot trust in the arm of the flesh. Because at some point, we will always fail each other. And listen, as Christians, we're always going to fail each other, aren't we? Because none of us are God. None of us are complete in ourselves. And there's always going to be times when, for one reason or another, we fail and disappoint each other. And there's only one in the universe that's unfailable, and that's God himself. And that's why he calls us to keep our arms on him and not to look to men. Because men, at some point, will always break trust. Revelation 19.11. This is beautiful. John had a revelation of Jesus. And it says, I saw heavens opened up. I saw the heavens opened up. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. That's the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his resurrected state in heaven. And he rides on a white horse and, his, and the name that he has is faithful and true. And it says that he rides and he judges and wages war. And what does he wage war against? He wages war against unfaithfulness, injustice, selfishness, which is the opposite of love. He, he rides war. He wages war against unholiness. See, God is opposed. He's opposed to the proud and he's opposed to sin. He's opposed to everything that will bring destruction into his creation. So God rides on the, for the cause of faithfulness and truth. Psalms 9.10 says this, And those who know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken those who seek thee. God is faithful. God does not forsake those who seek thee. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. This is a prophecy concerning Jesus. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch 
From the root, from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago? That the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, as God hates evil. And so it says Jesus will delight in hating evil. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision, but by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. So God says he wears a belt of faithfulness here or of truth or of righteousness here. And he has another belt up here of faithfulness. See, that's part of God's character. It's part of, of who he is. And in Psalms 89 verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundations of thy throne. Loving kindness and faithfulness go before thee. Faithfulness, again, dependability. Something that's worthy of trust. That's what goes before the Lord. Psalms 89, verses 1 and 2. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with all my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou will establish thy faithfulness. What a declaration. David says, I'm going to make known his faithfulness from generation to generation. We don't have time to go into David's life at this point, but I challenge you to read the the two books of Samuel, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and see God's faithfulness to David. Do you know that David was anointed to be king of Israel when he was just a young boy? The Samuel, the prophet, anointed David to be the ruler and king of Israel. But it was many years before that actually came to pass. And David allowed God to bring it to pass. And all the dealings that King Saul put him through, it's a a beautiful story. But David knew God's faithfulness. And years later, God put him in charge of the whole nation of Israel. The people came to him and said, David, we want you to be king. See, David is a type of King Jesus. It's a type of 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 the kingship of Jesus Christ. And so I just exhort you to read those two books because you see a beautiful, how David learned God's faithfulness. In Hosea 6 and verse 3, Hosea said that the faithfulness of the Lord is as sure as the dawn. And see, God demonstrates his faithfulness in the very creation. And, and we see God's faithfulness in the rising and the setting of the sun. It happens like clockwork. And if it didn't happen, the people that study those things would be greatly disturbed. God has shown his faithfulness. You can count on the sun coming up tomorrow, can't you? And that's an illustration of God's faithfulness. And if God makes the sun come up, isn't it going to be faithful to us? See, there's a a psalm that says God's God's creation is his handiwork. And it's like his knitting. But we are his people and we are his sons and daughters. And, and if God's concerned about the universe operating rightly, how much more is he concerned about our lives? As, as, his, as it were, his own flesh and blood. We're God's family, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God. 
the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful to his covenant. You can substitute the word promises for covenant. Covenant and promises are, are really similar in meaning. And so God keeps his promises because, his faith, because he is faithful. Now, our security comes from knowing God's faithfulness. Our security comes from knowing God's faithfulness. We can rest in his faithfulness as we have a revelation of his faithfulness. And that's where our security comes from. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's a short verse that says this. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. And why can we pray without ceasing? We can, one of the reasons we can pray without ceasing is that God is going to be faithful to hear our cry, isn't he? God is attentive to the prayer of the righteous, it says in the Psalms. And so as we learn to trust in him, and as we learn to really lay a hold of his faithfulness, then our response is one of prayer. And we become, like Abraham was, a friend of God. We become one of God's close friends. And, and God wants us to be a close friend of his. How many of you have played the game where one of you it has, puts a blindfold on and then the other person who is, does not have a blindfold on, he gives you verbal directions and you walk and he takes you outside around the campus and you're totally dependent on the word of that person. And if that person says, take a step, you take a step. And why do you take a step? Because you trust him. You trust him to lead you in the right paths. You trust him. He's not going to take you off Kerr Dam and smash to the bottom below or, you know, take you over to Bozeman Creek and <laughs> put you in Bozeman Creek. See, but you trust him. It's because you have trust in that person. And that's why God, our walk with him on this earth is, is many times we're, our, our, our spiritual eyes are blindfolded from actually seeing the eternal realities. And we're, we're, we're locked into this flesh. And so we have to apprehend God, not by our, our natural eyes, but we have to believe him, but with our, with our spirit and with our spiritual eyes, we lay a hold of the promises of God. And so God tells us to take a step and we say, Lord, how can I do that? I don't see any evidence that you're going to come through. You know, our, our mind tells us, Lord, that's really stupid for me to take that step of obedience. But we do it because we know the one who tells us to take the step. And when we, he instructs us to do something, we do it. And in doing so, we're able to prove that he's a faithful God. God will test our trust in him. And he'll put us in situations where we can demonstrate that we trust in God. Psalms 40, verses 7 and 8. David said, Then I said, Behold, I come. And in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy law is within my heart. That was David's cry, and also that's the cry of Jesus. Jesus delighted to do the will of his Father because he knew his Father to be faithful. Psalms 119 and verse 138. Thou hast commanded thy testimonies in righteousness and in exceeding faithfulness. All of God's testimonies are, are done in exceeding faithfulness. Psalms 111 and verse 7. The works of his hands are faithfulness and justice. All of his precepts are sure. All of the rules, all of the commandments the Lord has laid down are laid down in faithfulness and in justice. Matthew 5.18 says this. It says that not one stroke 
of the law will fail until all has been fulfilled. And like what, what, what he's saying is that there's not one dotting of the I or one crossing of the T that will fail from the law until everything, all of God's purposes are accomplished. And in Luke 21, 33, it says this, Luke 21, 33, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never, fa- will never pass away. What a contrast. We think that things are here to stay in the natural realm. And God says, you know, he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But one thing that will not fail is the word that God has spoken. Everything that God has said, he stands behind and he will perform. So we can say that all of heaven stands behind God's word. Infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite awareness of what's going on in the universe. That's what God's omnipresence is. All of that stands behind his word. So when God says something, he is definitely going to do it. This means three things. One is that God means what he says. God means what he says. God means what he says. Number two, and in his time, he will carry out what he says. Now, I'm going to better underline in his time. That's important. It's not in our time. It's in his time. In his time, he will carry out all that he says. And number three, all unfulfilled promises will result from man's failure, not God's. All unfulfilled promises will result from man's failure, not God's. All unfulfilled promises will be from man's failure, not from God's. That means that's how absolutely trustworthy God is. And that's how absolutely he will fulfill his word. He will absolutely fulfill his word. And that's the basis for our trust in him. We trust him because he's faithful. Hebrews 10, verses 35 to 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, that means that after you do what God told you to do, then you need to hold on to his faithfulness and have confidence that God is going to fulfill and perform what he's promised to you. Don't throw away your confidence because that has a great reward. And so we can say this, that we can rest in his faithfulness. We can rest in his faithfulness. That what God has said, he is going to perform. Numbers 23, 19. This is God in revealing something to the prophet Balaam. And it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And here Balaam receives the understanding that God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie because he's faithful. And he's also truthful. So God is, is, is incapable of telling a lie because his character demands that he be faithful. And you see, God is not like the proverbial donkey that is led by the carrot on the stick, you know, and the, the carrot's always there about two inches out before your mouth. And so the donkey takes a, 
takes a step. But as he takes a step, the carrot stays out there two inches. You know, God does not lead us along like that. God, when he puts desires in our hearts, when he puts the carrot out there, he fully intends for us to get to the carrot and eat it. See, because he's faithful, because he desires that we as his children will participate in his kingdom and participate in his life. God doesn't play games with us. And when he puts desires in your life, he intends that they be fulfilled because he's faithful. But you have to fulfill them God's way, not not in our way, the way of selfishness. Remember the chart we talked about last week? The chart that obedience leads to life, disobedience leads to death. See, we have to go God's way. We have to live by his eternal moral law. But when we do that, then we reap the reward of life. 2 Timothy 2.13. This is a neat revelation of God. And this gives me a whole lot of comfort. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even when we're not faithful, God doesn't say, okay, buddy, I'm going to teach you one. He does not respond that way. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Hallelujah. That's part of his char- the characteristic of being long-suffering. See, he puts up with our rebellion, and he does not return evil for evil, but God always returns good for evil, doesn't he? Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. And therefore, we need, to, we need to hold ourselves, when God has promised something to our lives, we need to hold back from wavering and, and getting double-minded about the promise of God. But we need to lay a hold of it and say, God, you're faithful, that in your time and in your way, you're going to fulfill this promise. Hallelujah. And we walk in that. So we walk in that assurance and, in, and just in that confidence. Now, I want to give you some examples that illustrate the faithfulness of God. And then, we'll, then we're going to close with our response to God's faithfulness. We want to look at a couple of people and how God demonstrated his faithfulness. For, let's, we want to look at Abraham, first of all. When we go back to Genesis, look at a couple interactions that he had with God. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, this is the first encounter that God has with Abram. His name at this time is Abram. And it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from all your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. God doesn't even tell him where to go. He says, You just leave and I'll tell you where to go. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow, what a promise. What a magnificent promises. In in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And those who bless you I will bless them. Anybody that curses you I will curse them. And I will make you a nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. What a tremendous promise. Was God able to fulfill that? Sure he is because he's faithful. Now it goes on. Genesis 13 verses 14 through 16. This is after Lot his nephew had a little disagreement and their cattle were getting mixed up and their herdsmen were having little battles about who got the good pasture land. So Abraham, Abram at this time, he says to Lot, listen, you choose the land where you want to go and I'll go the other way. So they did that. 
And, and after this had happened, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. So after, see, he had given up his right to the land. He told his nephew to have whatever he wanted. And Abe said he'd take whatever was left. Then God said, now, Abe, look to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. I'm going to give you all this land, and your descendants are going to be as the number of dust particles there are on the earth. Wow, what a promise. And again, see, it was because God was faithful. Now, Genesis 15 It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Another translation says that I am your great reward. I am the one who is your reward. And Abram said, oh, Lord, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and, he, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. See, Abram and Sarah did not have a child. And if his descendants were going to be as the, the number of grains of sand on the seashore, as the number of stars in the sky, he at least had to have one son, didn't he, for it all to get started. And so that's the promise he, God was giving to him. And from the time when, when Abraham left the land of Ur of the Chaldees, his homeland, it was 24 years before Isaac actually came into being. So Abram walked 24 years with God, believing God for that promise. There was a whole lot of testing and, and, and dealing that God was putting Abraham through, to preparing him to be the father of many nations. But God, because Abraham walked in, in obedience, God was able to, to be faithful and to fulfill this word to him. Then finally in Genesis 17, this is 24 years later now, And Abram is 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, remember, there's another revelation of God's holiness. He fell on his face. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. That means exalted father. He didn't have any kids yet, by the way, and he's 99 years old. But your name shall be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. And in that very name, there's a little bit of Jehovah in Abraham. Hear that? The Hebrew is really beautiful. Ruach, 
is the breath, the spirit of God. And see, God was going to put his ruha in Abraham. Hear it? <laughs> see, God's saying, I'm going to fill you with myself and you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. Now here God makes a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is something of 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 a lot of importance in the scripture. And I wish we had, we could do a whole lot of study just on this concept of covenant. But let me just briefly give you what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement between a greater being to a lesser being. A covenant is a, an agreement between a greater being to a lesser being. An agreement between a greater being to a lesser being who can accept it or reject it, but cannot alter it. Who can accept it or reject it, but cannot alter it. Okay, a covenant is agreement between a greater being to a lesser being who can accept it or reject it, but cannot alter it. Now, this is what God spoke to God, to Abe, Adam in the Garden of Eden. He made a covenant with him, and he said, if you will obey me and eat of the tree of life, then these things will happen. But if you reject my covenant and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then this is what will happen. You can accept it, or you can reject it, but you cannot alter it. See, Adam is not free to, to alter the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we are not either. See, God is the greater because he's uncreated. He's the great one, and he has made agreement with us, and we can choose to accept it. We can choose to reject it, but we cannot alter it. That's the stone, see, that's laid in Zion. Either the stone will crush us, and then Jesus puts us back together, or The stone will fall on us and will scatter us as fine dust. See, will utterly obliterate us. That's what the eternal law does. So that's what a covenant is. See, God is the greater, comes to man, and he he gives him an agreement that he can accept or reject, but he cannot alter it. And so God is making this kind of an agreement with Abraham, and he's saying that through your descendants, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, Abraham met those conditions, and that's why 24 years later, God was able to give him a son and give him the miracle son, Isaac, because Isaac was born to Sarah far beyond the the, the time of childbearing. She was past that age, and so it was impossible for her to have a child in the natural, but God supernaturally caused her body to come alive again, and and it said that she grew beautiful as a young woman again, and, and that she conceived a supernatural child by the hand of God. And so Isaac is the promised child. It's the child that's born out of the covenant of promise. Now, so because Abraham filled those conditions, he is called the father of all the nations. See, Abraham is our father. He's the father of salvation. And through the descendants of Abraham came Jesus. 
who is the savior of the world. It was through Abraham's faithfulness that Jesus was able to come and enter into human history. Now, Psalms 105 comments on this. Psalms 105, verses 8 through 12. I'm, I'm going to make my point about God's faithfulness here through this. It says, he has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, I will give you the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it. God gave, the promise. God gave them the promise when they didn't, weren't even a nation yet. God was showing them that he was going to be faithful to the covenant. And see, when God makes a covenant, he does not break that covenant. And notice the covenant is to the descendants. And you know that we are living in the faithfulness of God to the Abrahamic covenant. See, God is still faithful to Abraham because God made him a promise saying, Abraham, if you will do these things, then I will make my covenant with you and in you all of the earth will be blessed. So God is still being faithful to Abraham and he's being faithful through, through Abraham through his son Jesus, through us today. And isn't that a testimony of God's faithfulness? Faithfulness to the promise that he made to Abraham. Now, we, this pops up in the Old Testament all of the time. And I'm telling you to do your personal study of this. And how many times it goes back to Abraham and it mentions that God was faithful to the covenant, to the contract he made back there with Abraham. You go back and, oh, it's just full of the scripture. Let's just look at a couple. In Exodus 2, Exodus 2.24, says this. So God heard their groaning. This is the sons of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembered his covenant, his promise to them. And therefore, because of God's faithfulness, he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, all because it goes back to that, to that promise with Abraham. And then in Exodus 3, 6, when God reveals himself to Moses, and he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And isn't, isn't it interesting that God reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Showing that he is faithful to them. See, he's demonstrating his faithfulness to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. See, each, to each of the, the son and the grandson, God made some promises to. And then God is being faithful to that covenant. And then we read in Psalm 72, we sing this as a song, Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. Psalm 72, verses 18 and 19. 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Remember, Israel, Jacob is the, is the grandson. It was Abraham. His son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. Jacob wrestled with the angel, and God changed his name to Israel, which means prince with God. And so the psalmist said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. It's the God that is faithful to Israel, the God that is faithful to to Jacob, 
And see, from Israel, the whole nation gains its name because they all came from from that lineage. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And you see how important God's faithfulness is? It's because of these covenants that God is, 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 is still faithful to those contracts. And if you can come to the place where you can make a contract with God, God will be faithful to that covenant for the rest of eternity. And that's, that's based on his faithfulness. That should give us a great confidence in the word that God has spoken to us. You see, because he's faithful to perform that word. Let's look at Jesus as an example. Jesus in 1 Timothy 6.13. 1 Timothy 6.13. Paul's writing to Timothy and here's what he says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul says that Jesus is the one who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And see, Jesus was faithful to his father even at the point of death on the cross. Jesus was faithful to honor his father and to obey everything that his father told him to do because Jesus knew his father to be faithful. Jesus could entrust his life to the father because he knew his father would be faithful. And and look at Hebrews 5. 7 through 9, we get an understanding here of the temptations and the battle that Jesus went through as a human being. He had to to go through the same conflict and warfare that we go through in trusting the Father. It says this, Hebrews 5 and verse 7, In the days of his flesh, when he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him, who, who is the Father, who was able to save him from death and who was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And after, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And it says that Jesus was perfected in all the things that he suffered. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect or sinful, but Jesus grew in his character as a human being by obeying the Father. And back in Hebrews 4, 15, it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted because he lived in a human body. He lived in a sinful world, although he was without sin, but that doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. Jesus just every time made the right choice and he didn't succumb to sin. But Jesus knows what it's like because he was here and he lived in a human body. He lived with the temptations of the devil. He lived with the temptations of the lust of the eye, the pride of life, the pride of life and the lusts of the flesh. Therefore, Jesus knows what it's like when we go to him for help. He says, I've been there. And, and he even had to offer up prayers with loud cryings and tears in, in the weakness of his flesh that the Father would help him. And, and see, Jesus knew that the Father would, would give him strength to do, the, to do the, the thing that God the Father had called him to do. And then in Luke 22, we see Jesus in Gethsemane. Luke 22, verse 39 through 44. We see that Jesus, now he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. 
And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, and yet not my will, but thine be done. See, Jesus, because he knew the Father to be faithful, he said, Father, I don't want to drink this cup because it's a hard cup. It's a bitter cup. But nonetheless, I know that you're faithful. And even if it means me me dying on the cross, I will do it. And so I think Jesus, and it goes on to say in verse 44, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and he sweat and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. And so intense was this was this dedication to do the will of God and so awful was the cost of the cross that Jesus in his flesh just was shrinking back from that. And yet he knew the Father to be faithful, that even even though it looked impossible in his humanity, Jesus was able to go through with it and to become the source for us of eternal salvation. And Jesus could do that because he knew his Father to be faithful. Jesus could even go to death on a cross because he knew the Father would be faithful to him. That's how That's how far Jesus could abandon his life to the Father. He could trust him to that degree. And so Jesus, too, calls us to be committed to him in that degree because we can abandon ourselves to him, even unto death, if if God calls us to that. John chapter 11. This is a stirring account of how Jesus was showing his faithfulness to two of his very close friends. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent, sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified in. My, may be glorified by it. What Jesus was saying is that this is an opportunity for my father to be, sh- to be shown to be faithful. See, this was an instance where God could demonstrate his faithfulness. Now it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Keep that in mind. He loved them. Now when therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then Two days longer in the place where he was. After this, he said to his disciples, let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? See, their flesh was rebelling against that. Jesus answered and said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. He will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas therefore, who was called Dynamis, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. 
He was a real optimist. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to him, went to meet him, but Mary sat in the house. Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And can't you hear what's hidden in that statement? Lord, you failed. Lord, you failed. See, Mary came to, or Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you'd only been here, but you didn't come. You failed. You let us down. And remember what it says in Deuteronomy that God cannot fail. He cannot fail. But Martha kind of catches herself and she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And instead of believing it for now, here Mary flips to the future and she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And here's what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall even live shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where where Martha had met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house, and consoling her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep, weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. And again, Mary was saying, Lord, you failed. You let us down. See, she was thinking that if Jesus would have been there, she'd known that he could have healed them. But to raise from the dead was beyond Martha's and Mary's comprehension. They just didn't, weren't even thinking that way. When they were saying, Lord, you've let us down. You haven't been faithful to us. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled And said, where have you lain him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then this is the shortest verse in the Bible, but one of the most expressive. It said, Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, how behold, how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who is blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of Mary, or Mary, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. 
And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Untie, unbind him and let him go. And just, this, this has been such an incredible experience because here, you know, Lazarus looked like a mummy because he was all wrapped up in gauze. And it was a wonder he could even move. And here, you know, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus, you know, all bound up, you know. And here he was alive with a face. He had a mask on. And probably he's really uncomfortable with all that anointing material and burial material. But Jesus called him back. He called life back into his body. And he was demonstrating to them that he was faithful. That was an object lesson of God's faithfulness. In Acts 8, we find the story of Philip who was preaching this tremendous revival down in Samaria. And the Lord spoke to him and said, go out into the desert. And because Philip knew God to be faithful, he did. He went out into the desert, you know. And how many of you know, if you're having a revival, you don't leave the revival. But the Spirit said, Philip, leave. So Philip went down to the, re- went down to the desert. And he met this, this Ethiopian fellow who was sitting there reading a track that somebody had given him, given him in Jerusalem, an Isaiah 53 track. Philip goes up to him and says, you know what you're reading? And the guy says, no, no, come on up and tell me. So he goes up in the chariot. He reads him. It was the story of Jesus in Isaiah 53. And the guy comes to the Lord. He's baptized. Right after he's baptized, the spirit of the Lord snatches Philip and transports him to Azotus a town some miles away. And the guy was so happy, he just went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> guy hardly even noticed that Philip was gone. He was so happy that he had met the Lord. You see, God was faithful to lead Philip. And if we're willing to step out in obedience, God will prove his faithfulness to us, even if it means doing things that go against our natural mind. I have a couple examples just I want to share in testimony to God's faithfulness. I had an old guitar and I was using it for leading worship several years ago. And I was happy with this guitar. And it just wasn't a good guitar for, for using without um, a microphone and things. It wasn't, it, it wasn't really good acoustically. But I told the Lord that I was um, not complaining. And, and, but I was just happy to keep this if that's the one he wanted me to have. But if the Lord wanted me to have another guitar, I'd really be happy to. I just left it with the Lord. And I prayed that prayer that on, on a Monday and that Friday after I was leading songs at a full gospel businessmen's meeting, this guy who, who didn't know me from Adam came up, put a check in my hand for $100 and said, get a new guitar. And so that was the, the word of the Lord to me. And through some other circumstances, I got the, the fine Martin guitar that I have now. And it was God's faithfulness because I, I let, let him, let the need be known to him, and he chose to fulfill it in that way. And I'm not saying that every time you do it, you're going to get a new guitar, but that's how God just moved in my life at that time. There's been many times when he hasn't done that, but it, it, whatever God does, he's faithful. Another uh, time, uh, I had old Volkswagen after the summer of service that I led in 1977. It, it died, and um, I didn't have a car for about five months, and um, I just really felt that God wanted me just to trust him for a car, that I wasn't just to go out and buy one, but I really felt impressed with the Lord just to, to say, just to leave the need with him. And so I did. And I um, just walked and rode my bike all that, all that fall to, th- on through December and uh, just learned to get along without a car. But I just, I just had this word in my heart that God was going to, to be faithful to provide one for me. And, um, I didn't really let the need be known generally. I just, 
if people would ask, I would share with them what happened. But I, I just, I didn't broadcast it to everybody. I just said, Lord, you're going to be faithful to this. And God spoke to a couple in the church. And uh, they believed that God would want, was going to provide a car. So they began praying. And through some unexpected means, the Lord provided about $8,000 for them. They paid off their car that they had gotten. And there was uh, $2,500 left. And so they said, Lord, is this for a car for Dick? And the Lord said, yes. And they went down and they bought it and everything. The Lord took them to the right car, the Hornet, the, the yellow Hornet that I have now. And, and they came to my doorstep on a Saturday afternoon. They called me up and this guy says, Dick, I got to see you. And I thought, oh, no, something's really happening in his life. You know, and they came to the door and they're really sober, you know, and they said, will you get your coat on? And I said, oh, OK. You know, I thought, oh, man, what is this? We go out and there's this car sitting there and he pulls out these keys and says, Merry Christmas. I just couldn't believe it. Praise the Lord. Uh, it was just I just you couldn't believe that. And it wasn't that the car was so neat. It was the revelation of God's faithfulness. That was what was neat as I thought, oh, God, your word is true and I can trust you for everything. Praise the Lord. And then the story continues is that they had a um, a two hundred and fifty dollar. Um, they, they, the car was twenty eight hundred dollars and uh, they'd only had twenty five hundred. And so there was still like two hundred fifty dollars left to pay on it. And, and they said, well, we promised the, 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 the car dealer that we'd have the money Monday. And uh, he says, We're, we just felt that was of the Lord to do. We don't have any more money, but I need $250 that the Lord's going to provide by Monday. And somebody had given $250 to the church in, in my name. And Pastor Weaver had just given that to me and said, hey, Dick, there's a check here for $250 for you for your car. And I said, I told the guy, I said, hey, I have got a check for $250 in my pocket that somebody gave for the car. The exact amount. To so ah, it was just great. The Lord is so good. You see, and if we get ourselves in positions of trusting God, he can prove himself faithful. We prove his faithfulness by trusting God. There's, I have so many financial stories. God has instructed me to give money away, and then I've needed some, and people have provided it. It's been so neat, and that's so neat to live that way, to, to get yourself in a position where, where God will be faithful to you. You know, Step out and trust him for things. Um, I want to share this. Too. The Lord dealt with me when I was um, early years about a wife, about trusting him for a wife. And the Lord gave me a promise to, after a period of dealing from Isaiah 58. And uh, the promise that he gave me it was a little out of context, but I felt the Lord just gave me this verse. It says this. It says, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water who, whose waters do not fail. I got that in the 10th of January, 1975. Got it marked in my Bible. And I just knew the Lord was speaking to me about the whole area of marriage. And I didn't understand whether I'd be married or not. But I understood that the Lord would guide me and that whatever my state, that he would continually fulfill me. And I'd be like a watered garden. And I, he would just take care of me in that area. And so I, I, I just clung to that verse and I didn't have the I didn't have all of the I had real peace that I could trust God with this and then through a bunch of circumstances I met my wife on a summer of service team in 1977 and then we got married in July of 1978 and that that promise has been fulfilled through our relationship God has made, still kept me as a watered garden but he was faithful and he's continuing to be faithful to that word now what's our response Luke 16 10 through 13 very simple, our response. If God is faithful, then he expects us 
to be faithful, doesn't he? Just like all the other attributes of, of God's character, our response is to be like Jesus and to be like the Father. Luke 16, 10, verse, and 10 through verse 13. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon or unrighteous money, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who, can, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches or God and mammon. And God is giving us an eternal principle here. And he is saying that if you're faithful with little, then you are going to have the character to be faithful in much, aren't you? And see, so God gives you a little bit. See, he's given you a little free time. He's given you a little money. He's given you a little ability right now. And God watches to see whether you're going to be faithful with the little things. Because if you develop a faithful character, then God can make you a steward over much. And one day I was seeking the Lord, and God just laid this on my heart so strongly. And he said to me that, or just, you know, just made clear to me that in heaven, there is no limit to the resources that God has, is there? There's no energy crisis with God. There's no uh, depletable resources with the Father. There's no, you know, there's no limit to his wealth and his power. There's no limit to, the, you know, the universe, they say, is expanding at the speed of light. There's no limit to how big God can get because he's inexhaustible. So the only limiting factor is our character because God cannot wisely invest lots of riches. He can't make a steward over riches until we have the character to go with that because God will not put us in charge of a bunch of things if we don't have the character because we'll just botch it up and hurt people. And God won't permit that in, in his kingdom of love. So it's only those who are faithful that God will entrust the true riches to. But the Lord says that if we will be faithful here on this earth with the little amounts God's given us, he might not have given you much, but that's okay. You just be faithful with what God's given you. And when he sees that you're faithful with that, then he will give you more. And then when you get to heaven and when we reach our eternal home, then we're going to be equipped to handle the kind of stewardship that God wants to give us. The stewardship that's unlimited by the earthly limitations that we now know. The only limitation in heaven will be our character. And so we need to learn to be faithful because our eternal destiny depends on that. See, our eternal destiny depends on our character. And that's why the Lord says, be faithful now. Be faithful in the little. Because when you get here, I will make you ruler over much. Unlimited supply. And it's only limited by our character. That's God's heart. See, the Father wants to make us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He wants to make us co-rulers. We're going to rule and reign the universe with him. Reign in the universe. But we'll only do that if we learn to be faithful here. And then Jeremiah 3 and verse 22. The prophet exhorts us to, to do this. 
Jeremiah 3.22. He says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal, heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to thee, for thou art the Lord our God. And God says, Return to me, faithless sons and daughters. And if you'll do that, and if you'll repent of your faithlessness, then I will make you faithful. What's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Faithfulness, isn't it? That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So God says, I will make you faithful if you will return to me. And if we say, if we are to be faithful, this is the kinds of things we need to be. We need to be dependable. We need to be worthy of trust. Are you dependable? Can people depend on you when they ask you to do something? Are you worthy of trust? When people share things with you, do you go and gossip them to other people? Or are you worthy of that trust? Do you just keep it between yourself and God? Are you a man of your word, a man or a woman of your word? Do you do what you say you're going to do? Or do you say one thing and then do another thing? Are you honest? Are you reliable? Those are the kinds of qualities that are entailed in faithfulness. And that's how God wants us to be. That's the practical application of this message, is us learning to be faithful as men and women. I want to close with one scripture from Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, remember going back to the covenant, he could swear by no one greater, um, since he could swear by no one greater, because there was no one greater than God, so he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently awaited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? All of us. We're all heirs of the promise. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. See, that's his faithfulness, the unchangeableness of his purpose. In order that by these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement We who have fled for refuge in laying a hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as the anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And see, the hope, the anchor of our soul that we have rests in God's faithfulness. And he desires to show us the unchangeableness of his purpose, which is all based in his faithfulness. In his faithfulness lies our total assurance, because all of the promises that God has made are all going to be fulfilled because of his character of faithfulness. Listen to this song, a familiar song, an old hymn of the church that we sing, which is called Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. 
summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll write the quality of your faithfulness on our hearts, Lord. Father, I pray that every promise that you've given us, Lord, we would have that assurance and revelation of your character that you stand behind your promises, Lord. And Father, because of your faithfulness, we have the promise that you cause all things to work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Thank you that we have that assurance, Father, because you are faithful. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will take these scriptures, will take these revelations from your word of your wonderful character and will reveal them to our heart. And that as we daily walk with you in trusting your promises, Lord, we might receive the revelation of your faithfulness and might declare, as the songwriter has declared, great is your faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray your blessing upon my brothers and sisters today now as they go and as they work these truths into their life. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.